I did not like South Africa at first. Hated it with the past. I was shy and I wouldn't let myself go out and meet people. But once I started meeting the people and really getting into the culture, now it's like it's like another home for me. Hello and welcome to A Pixie from Kilmarnock, a program about the people, places, and history of the Northern Neck of Virginia. I'm your host, Pixie E. Curry. Countries, continents, were tied together because of the plight of African people. Here in the River City, the protests of the removal of the reminders of slavery and the Confederacy were ongoing. just as South Africa had experienced in 2015 with the removal of statues that represented and glorified apartheid. Growing up as a young resident of segregated Northern Neck of the Commonwealth of Virginia, where Jim Crow was a voting resident, many of the limitations, ordinances, gentlemen agreement, whatever were the norm, were observed. But after segregation was abolished, Jim Crow changed its name. It's now known as systemic racism. And it travels across cities, states, countries, and continents. It wears tiaras, baseball caps. It carries executive briefcases, iPhones, ride the subways, attend concerts. It's everywhere. Enjoying the same privileges it has always enjoyed. particularly sanctioned 
attempts while trying to deny the rights of other people, particularly the African. I interviewed Dr. Dawn Y. Curry, who likes to be called by her nickname, Fluff, twice by phone in April of 2021 from her home in Nebraska and later that June of 2021 here in Richmond, Virginia. Dr. Curry is a Fulbright scholar, an expert in documenting apartheid and sexism in South Africa, an author, and an associate professor of history and ethnic studies at the University of Nebraska, Lincoln. The first part is the phone interview from her home in Nebraska. My name is Dawn Curry. I received a PhD from Michigan State University in African History in 2006. And Michigan State is one of the top schools for African history in the country. And it's also a school where Magic Johnson went to, and his family is from East Lansing. And so I always liked Magic Johnson, so that kind of drew me to the school as well as his reputation. I am an author of Apartheid on a Black Owl, Removal and Resistance in Alexandria, South Africa, which was published by Paul Grave Macmillan in 2012. That was my first book. I had turned my dissertation into a book that looks examines Alexandra, which is a northeastern township in Johannesburg, South Africa. And I looked at its various forms of resistance from the 60s up to the 80s. In particular, I examined the 1976 Soweto Uprising, which was occurred because the government, the apartheid regime, which had been in power since 1948 under the Nationalist Party, began to impose Afrikaans, which was a Dutch-German derivative language, on all Africans and in all of their classes, all medias and structures. So say, for instance, you took math, English, history, science, geography, it was in Afrikaans. And so students protested. So when I reviewed the literature, I, I had to find where I could contribute to the ongoing conversation. And I went online, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was created by President Nelson Mandela in 1996, which gave victims of apartheid and the atrocities that occurred from 1960 to 1994 to tell their story and also hear the testimonies of those who committed acts against families. 
in exchange for amnesty. Not everyone got amnesty, but anyway, I was reading these transcripts, and I found out that people talked about how people died rather than how they lived. So in Chapter 5 of my book, I talk about oral obituaries and how people talk about the mundane things, what they did, they were eating or they drank tea or the way they were killed. That led to future work in which I just focus on the children and I talk about death in the from the viewpoint of sunrise is when they were born or when they became politically baptized to sunset when they're near death and die. That interest in that, you know, I was mostly focused on women and that interest led me to my second book, which I am revising at this point, which is talks about how were African women intellectuals during the segregation era, which is from 1910 to 1948. So this book deals with an earlier period, you know, the period before the onset of apartheid. I want to get back to your writings because that is from you working in South Africa. I'm going to take you back home to the northern neck. We're going to compare some of the issues that you're writing about in South Africa. Your hometown? My hometown is Kilmarna, Virginia. You know, I, I give mad props to that because growing up on a back road and not having many children around at first until April Gardner and then the Mitchell and them moved in, I learned how to do a lot of things by myself and how to entertain myself and read. And my mother always made me take my school clothes off sit at the kitchen table, do my homework before I could play. And honestly, I'm talking to you as a doctor today because of my mother, because she really instilled the value of an education on me. I always, well, I had thoughts of what I was going to be. I was really interested in Spanish, and I thought I wanted to be a Spanish interpreter. So I knew I was going to get a Ph.D., but I thought it was going to be in Spanish. But my only degree in Spanish is my BA, and that's Spanish in International Affairs. And then I went to International Affairs, African Studies for my MA. And then my PhD is my only degree in history. Kilmonic, I think, having really, having some decent teachers like Ernestine Fisher, although I didn't get along with her, but I learned a lot from her, and especially from Sandra Davis, now Mrs. Smyer, who really took me under her wing when I was in the 11th grade. I owe a lot of people who really took their time, even Cousin Ernestine Bird, going back to the 6th grade. So this wasn't just by me alone. A lot of nurturing, a lot of teachers along the way to guide me. What school did you attend? I was a product of Lancaster school system. So I went to Lancaster Primary, Lancaster Intermediate, and Lancaster High School. What year did you graduate? Graduated in 1986. There was about 82 of us that graduated. By the time you started school, school was already integrated. So you were not yes. you were not part of that freedom of choice. Mama went to Central, right. and it was definitely segregated. She graduated in 66. And she would tell me how the education she thought was much better because black teachers cared more. It never, I never had that experience. I don't regret, but if I had to do it all over again, I would have started in an HBCU. What is your earliest recollection of racism? Ooh, I think one time with Sheriff Foster, Garland Foster, he went um, and tried to say something to my mother, and she pointed her finger at him, like, basically, don't don't mess with me. still remember vaguely the colored signs in Grant's 
city in, you know, in Gloucester, which was the shopping store, and also in the doctor's offices and being separated and mama making me run up and down so we would get uh, attended to. Those are my early remembrances of race. But mama did talk a lot about the KKK, the gentleman that had, was dragged by the truck. You oh, know, Frank Smith. Yeah. And I saw him and she explained to me what happened. So that was another way I was introduced to race, talking about what happened to him. Ben Franklin, another way I learned about race, they used to watch black people like hawks. You could not go in that store without being followed, looked at, there, and colonial also watched you like a hawk. Couldn't go in the leaves at all. Yep, it was known. Black people were not welcome. Not welcome by Booth, Georgia. Yep, yep. Yeah, our town didn't have this crazy racial history. All the little frilly things that has made a town change, but underlined underneath the belly still is the streak of racism. It's still there. It's still there. Yeah. I remember in high school, some of my classmates went into racial relationships, and every time they rode through Kilmonic, the black person would duck so people wouldn't see them. What was your first job while you were living in Kilmonic? My first job was as a dishwasher at age 13 in Deltaville in a restaurant with my mother. My mother was a waitress, and in fact, she passed that down to me. And um, I waitressed for a long time, bus girls, you know, put myself through school, waitressing, loved it. And it also got me out my shyness because mama said, like, you know, you're too stiff. You want to make money, you got to show your personality. So the minute I started doing that, my tips got better. And I had people would come into the crab shack or wherever I worked and just harass me, you know, um, sarcastically because they, they knew they were going to get a sarcastic response back. So it was fun. <laughs> the sassy fluff. <laughs> uh-huh. And also uh, it helped me work with time management skills because you had to time the food right, you, you know, all the kind of stuff you got to think about when you're serving the public. Who were your favorite teachers? I know you know, named some, but who were some of your favorite teachers that you were? Uh, Sandra Davis or Sandra Gaskins, uh, Myers, Myers now. And I guess that's it. One of the teachers, because I thought she was racist, um, she taught art. So, yeah, I think that's it. Maybe Mr. Witty, not remembering him. But Cousin oh. Ernestine was a favorite. What person motivated you as you was growing up? I would say Mrs. Davis, because... I felt like she kind of took me under her wing and saw something in me. She also made sure that I got on the National Honor Society. You know, just just very encouraging and, you know, very supportive. Yeah, I felt like she she was a good mentor. Oh, now, I didn't like her class, but Mrs. Francine Waddy was also a good teacher. I hated typing. Mama made me take typing. But guess what I do every day? I type, so... I was really appreciative of that skill, and I thanked Mama and Mrs. Waddy in my first book and the acknowledgments for that. And, yes, yeah, she was tough. She she didn't play. Mm-hmm. And, and I knew she could go and tell my Mama, too, but, you know, I was rebellious, and if I got an F, I threw it in the trash, and she got on me. So that ended that. So you graduated from yeah. high school, and what yeah. What made you choose your first school? That was Mary Washington? Actually, I applied to two schools, Mary Washington and Johnson C. Smith. Mary Washington showed me money, so I went there. also went there because Robin Fisher was there, too. 
So, you know, somebody knew me, I knew them, and so I did that, and I majored in Spanish, and then they had a new major there called International Affairs, and I got to take courses in history, geography, poli-sci, and so I did that, and I graduated in 1990. From there, I went home for a year. I worked at Super Super 10, Super 8, or whatever it's called, Super 10. It was the, the John Roberts Cockle store on the corner, and I was the cashier. I did that, and I waitressed, and I saved up my money. And then I applied to grad school at Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, and I got accepted, and I got funded. And I went there for my master's in international affairs, African studies. And from there, I graduated from there in 1996. From there, I went to Michigan State University in East Lansing, Michigan, where I began my doctoral training. And one of, and one of my favorite uh, professors there had, had us, all of us Africanists that she mentored, learning how to write grant proposals my second week at Michigan State. And so... We would go to the coffee shop every week and critique each other's proposals. And most of us ended up winning. I won my first fellowship the first time I tried to. Um, it was from the Social Science Research Council and American Council of Learning Societies. It was a pre-dissertation fellowship, and that got me to South Africa for the very first time in 1997 for an entire year. That's and an achievement. That is... Mm. And I'm not going to lie, I did not like South Africa at first. Hated it with the passion. And I think it's because I was shy and I wouldn't let myself go out and meet people. But once I started meeting the people and really getting into the culture, now it's like it's like another home for me. And I have friends for, for 20, of the 20 years I've been gone, I still have friends now that have become family because we've been so close throughout the years. We even call each other when I'm not in the country, or and we talk on a regular as, as much as I would talk to somebody in, say, Virginia. And so I think the beauty of the people learning the learning languages, going to cultural shows like jazz shows, plays, poetry, readings really helped me get a feel for the place. And, and to me, I feel like I have an affinity with South Africa. Like, I really feel at home there. And I feel that way more than when I went to Ghana, strangely, because you would think I was so comfortable there or, or in Kenya. But South Africa really is home. And I do hope to retire there. I have a quote from you that said, To me, Johannesburg is home. It has the pulse of the people. It's edgy. I just like the humanity of the place. Being here serves my creativity as a scholar and a person. It's like the water in Virginia. It just stirs something in you. Yeah, yeah, yeah that exactly sums it up. I was going to say one of my South African friends says, like, she loves Joburg like we don't get it you know like it's one of those things but you know when you feel something in inside your gut that's home you just know it you know when you talk about it's like the water in uh Kilmarnock and that's how I feel like when I first go over that crazy bridge uh yeah but it's the water it just like okay I can breathe I'm home mm-hmm. to you Johannesburg is sort of a reflection of Kilmarnock yeah, it's a reflection of Kilmarnock, but it's also a deeper, deeper image of Kilmarnock on a high, a different scale. But the fact that 
people greet each other. That's like hometown. You go in the store, hey, hey, such and such, how you doing? You know, you know how we are at home. Hey, baby. You know, it's nothing for a taste. It's nothing sexual. That's just the way that people talk to you. And you kind of get that there, too, because not greeting someone is considered an insult. And people take the time to have conversations with you. I feel oftentimes in the States, we're always busy. Time is money. And sometimes we don't take the time to get to know people or, or to greet them and see how they're doing. So I think that South Africa is, it really helped me understand a lot of things about myself that I wouldn't have understood just being in the U.S. You are listening to A Pixie from Kimani with an interview with Dr. Don Y. Curry, fluff to her family and friends. South Africa racism versus Kilmonic racism. Can you compare it or is it a is it the same? Well, you know, I guess the the only the comparison would be like the end of the civil rights era and the end of the apartheid era. I was born in sixty seven, so I was very young when the Civil Rights Act well, it wasn't born when the Civil Rights Act was passed. Apartheid, when that ended in 1994, and I went there in 1997, three years after it, I would say that the racism still exists. White people are still in control of the economy. You have a small black and middle class having most of the riches. And then you have a large population that is undersourced and underfunded. I mean, there's similar, there's a lot, still a lot of similarities. During apartheid, the police brutality was right, just like it is in the States now, killing people for a daylight, whether you take a video camera or not. A lot of that is still going on. Look at the George Floyd trial on now, and you got this man being put on, on trial for all the bullshit talking about he ate some drugs. Wouldn't nobody say they ate some drugs? You know, just making, trying to make him look like the criminal when he was just trying to look, trying to breathe. Apartheid, reading all these stories, narratives about people being woken up in the middle of the night for a pass, which was an identity document that all Africans had to carry on their person to show that they were allowed to be in a prescribed area. So what the government did under apartheid, especially with the 1950 Groups Areas Act, was begin to create these racial enclaves. And so they were moving people out of the urban center because they wanted to make that white and put all the other races around the outskirts, which meant that Africans and others were further away from places of employment. So they had to pay for the government's policy of segregation. And so they only wanted Africans in the city to work and then go out at night. They even had a 9 p.m. curfew. If they had to look for work, they had to get a special pass for 72 hours to be in the city. I guess that they here we got the Republicans trying to stop people of color from voting. They're coming up with these bogus-ass rules and stuff like that. I guess the 
it's still white systemic racism that still connects these two countries and is still in existence today. Truly. Outlawing people giving you water if you're standing in uh-huh. line. I mean, it's outrageous. I haven't lived in Kilmarnock for many a year. I, I haven't either, 32 years. But, you know, there aren't many opportun a lot of opportunities in the county. You get a lot of brain drain, too. You know, a lot of people leave and don't come back. I mean, look at us. Right. Is that one of the reasons why you left when you graduated? I mean, there was no question that you were going to go to college. Did you ever think about coming back to Kilmarnock? Um, wow. Yeah, no. Because every time the next move I made led me somewhere else. You know, I, I, I'm living in Nebraska because they offered me a job. You know, did I plan on living in Nebraska? No. So I went from Fredericksburg. I used to go home every weekend in Fredericksburg and got my clothes washed, and I still kept my busing job at um, Captain, was it Captain George's at the time, turned into Iris Place, and I did that. Then after that, you know, I applied to grad school in Ohio. And then from Ohio, I went to East Lansing. Then from East Lansing, went to South Africa. Then I ended up in Washington State for two years, which I did not like. And I got the hell out of there after two years. And then I came here to Nebraska. And I do hope to go back to the East, whether it's in Virginia or North Carolina. So I knew I wanted to do something else that was not provided by the county. So, yeah, I guess I did want to get out. So what reminds you of uh, the Northern Neck when you're living away from home? What are some things that you might look for, or if you even do that, but all of a sudden maybe it's that vibe that you get. What are some things about Kilmarnock that lingers with you? Well, you know, like I said, the community, you know, everybody know everybody, the hellos, the greetings, being called by my nickname. I think that's really important. I have gotten on people that call me Dawn that don't that normally don't call me Dawn because it sounds fake. I'm fluff. I'm Dawn too, but I'm fluff. I would say what I miss being in Nebraska that I got at home was fresh water, fresh seafood. That just a way to be able to be healed just by sitting by the water. I miss that, and that's something I definitely want to go back to. Oh, out here, everything is man-made, a man-made lake, not natural. You know, I miss the opportunities to go to family reunions or or go to pay my respects at funerals. Just miss um, some holiday events, you know, because I, I typically come home twice a year. In fact, you know, one time I think I was in South Africa more than I was in Virginia. To me, home will always be home because it reared me and still with me. And ironically enough, I live in Lancaster County, Nebraska. Ain't that a trip? <laughs> yeah. And they have they have phone numbers that will go 435 and 438. I'm like, whoa, this is too eerie. Yeah. So when I come to Virginia, I, I stay at my friend Linda Mitchell's and her husband's house in Richmond because they're five minutes from the airport, and I take my time. I don't go on Interstate 64 because I just want to absorb the beauty of Virginia. So I drive down 360, and I just take my time, and I look at the sky and the trees, and, yeah, I just... I just love that chill. You know, I love driving all over. I take my niece and nephews on field trips, and so we go exploring all over. I think one Christmas I drove over 700 miles in Lancaster County and around with them just going through different places. So 
I don't think I appreciated the the scenery as much when I was growing up, but I definitely do now. It was such a privilege and an honor to be near the Chesapeake Bay, the Rappahannock River, and pretty much everywhere you go, you got water. You know, it kind of renews you, and and that's what I like about both places, as in Kilmarnock, as in South Africa, because I get renewed every time I go there. Know that feeling when I go on the roads that I always wondered about when I was growing yeah, up. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. yeah, I did that last time. Went to rebuild because I always heard about rebuilds. Then I went. There, I was like, Oh my god, this is it! This is all rebuild is one lane. I'm like, Oh my god! But anyway, you know, I had no, I can't remember going to rebuild. Yeah, where do you used to hang out when you was growing up? Oh, uh, shall I say it? Rice's, um, Crosby's, people's houses. And actually, honestly, I hung out with Mom and them in the yard because we would have house parties. Trudy and Lucille would come, and Linda and Helen and Heidi, and then we had Charles and Mary, and we just party in the yard and had our music, and it was fun at, you know, cookout. So I guess I spent a lot of time at home partying with, with my adults. Believe me, Rice's comes up by everybody, and that includes uh, Dr. Elton Smith. He was talking about... I think before it was Rice's, it was called Hatchet's Churchill Beach. A lot of people yeah, went to Churchill, Churchill Beach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was also down uh Joe and Rosalie's house a lot, too, playing with Lynn, playing Frisbee in the backyard and stuff like that. So many other people that had grown up or grew up or is growing up on the neck. And there's a certain, as I say, spirit that mm-hmm. lives in us. But it's hard to explain uh, where it comes from, where it comes from, you know, our families. But our families had it. And where did they mm-hmm. get that spirit? From their families. But still, there's something about living on the neck that mm-hmm. is unique, I feel. Mm-hmm. And there's something also, too, about living on the neck living on a back road, and you really get to know yourself and you get to entertain yourself. And sometimes I think that's been my best weapon against a lot of this stuff in academia. Because, you know, academia, some people are, you know how it is, some people are very competitive. And because I keep to myself, I'm known to keep to myself, I'm known to be quiet, and I like it that way because I let in whom I want to let in and I keep out whom I don't want in. And that's something I think you learn in the county, too, how to protect your inner spirit and your inner force in you. And I would say my mama, you know, I dedicated my first book to her because she's really the one that got me interested in resistance. I mean, seeing her that day stand up to Garland Forster and told and telling him to get her, get his fucking finger out her face. I was like, wow. Is this short black lady standing up to this white man. I think that we are a proud people in Kilmonic. We're industrious, and we're very hospitable in many ways. There's good and bad and everything, but I think for the most part, there's a sense of identity as being people from Lancaster County or Northumberland County. You know, we, we took pride in our basketball games. You know, the rivalries. I mean, we had we created some great, historical lore in the in that in those areas. So I think that's why people will always hold a place fondly and will go back to it eventually. I also like going home and 
talking to the elderly, the elderly members of our community. You know, I love talking to Gus and Louise. I'm sorry Gus has passed on, but I, I'm, I finally share the memories of hanging out with them. You know, I go talk to Shirley. You know, other, other people, too, because, I mean, Shirley, Shirley has been involved in my life since the day I was born because... You talk about my mom. mama was... Uh-huh. Mama mama. was pregnant with me, and Mama Claudine said every time she laid down, right, she would push me back up. So Mama Claudine told her to stand up. There I come. My mama's eating a bowl of ice cream. I come while she's standing up, and Shirley catches me. So that's how I arrived into the world. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And so, yeah, and, oh, definitely, Mama Claudine definitely was a mentor. Yes. I mean, remember one time I was in Kilmonic and I had some holes in my jeans. And, you know, I was a punk dresser back then and she got on me. You know, you can, you can do better than that. I mean, but now that's the style. But, you know, but, yeah, I got where she was coming from. But, yeah, but, but she was also a guiding force. And I felt like she, she was like a grandmother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but, yeah. I think, like, I mean, I really don't think there's any wealth in the world I would want to have been born in because, you know, I got to, I got to, I got to experience what it meant to be black in a mixed race community. And I got to experience how to navigate among whites. The beauty, I mean, come on, the beauty alone is enough. Yes. You can never take that away from us. No. Sometimes I wish I could talk to my grandfather, but and Ann Bell, I love talking to Ann Bell. She cr- cracked me up. We would, I don't know, when I was growing up, we would have church, and she would get out her hymnal book, and I would preach. It was fun. Daddy said they fun. used to do that. They would, they would play church, and Uncle Joe would be the preacher. Yeah. <laughs> and I think one time they was doing that, and uh, Uncle Joe. They were small then. It was a, uh, I think, it was Reverend Johnson, was the was the minister then, and Uncle Joe was mocking Reverend Reverend Johnson, not knowing that Reverend Johnson was there. Mm. Ooh. Yeah, <laughs> enough said, right? Enough yeah. said. Oh boy. Oh yeah. my goodness. Yeah, I can just imagine uh, Miss Minnie Curry what she just said to Joe after that day. <laughs> Uh huh. Uh huh. Oh boy. So yeah. you were talking about how y'all was set up in the yard and had cookouts. What some of the f- some of the foods that you associate with uh, Kilmarnock and being definitely the Northern Nick? Okay. Well, Helen Mitchell will always bring a potato salad. Of course, hamburgers, hot dogs, and crab cakes. You know we gotta have some seafood. That's what you associate. Fresh fish. You know, going down to Ray Pittman's, wherever that is, on Ottoman Road, and getting fresh fish, you don't get that in Nebraska. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. I'm always talking about, it's like, I need to be back near water, and my friends over here look at me like I'm crazy. But, yeah. The Northern Egg Ginger Ale and the Soft Shell Crabs, too. Can't forget them. And I wish someone would open up Crosby's again, too. I mean, yo, Crosby's chicken sandwich, you know. I was going to Late s- night. On the white bread. There you go, with the special sauce and the grease be dripping, but that's all right. Oh, yeah. It was good. It was good. I heard. 
you're writing, you're revising. What what are you revising uh, with your book? I'm revising uh, certain sections of some chapters, and I'm going to have it all done by May 14th, before that, actually. And then it will take five, five to six months um, before it gets out. So it should be out November, December 2021. And then I'm going to work on my third, start working on my third book, which is about um, African women who were banned, banished, or exiled. So banned uh, during the apartheid era meant that these people were sequestered and were only allowed to talk to one person at a time. Banished means that they were taken from their communities to remote areas somewhere else where they may not speak the African language nor Afrikaans. Then exile meant that they voluntarily or reluctantly went out of the country to further the the liberation struggle. So that's that's my next project. And I'm also, um, I've been doing the interviews. I want a foray into documentary film. And so I hope to produce one one day on South African women jazz artists. I was going to tell you, um, your mom, she used to lend her albums to Angela and myself. And, oh, uh, yeah? Oh, yes. Um, Isaac Hayes' Hot Butter Soul. Yeah. Uh, Isaac Hayes' Black Moses. Uh, Stevie Wonder. Um, I'm trying to think some other albums that uh, she lent us. But that's when, you know, my I think my first experience with listening to full-length albums was because of your okay. mom. Okay. Other than, you know, listening to WRAP out of Norfolk. Yeah, I love WRAP and Wowie. See, I didn't I didn't hear Wowie. We I it heard WRAP, Daddy Jack. Yeah, Daddy Jack Holmes from out of North with WRAP. And then we would play that and then um at nighttime we would get WABC um Cousin Brucey out of New York. So we was okay. hearing the rock and roll at night and uh, R&B in the morning, daytime. So okay. I heard uh, some of my classmates talk about Why We, but I don't remember Why We. Yeah, it, it was a jam back then. Everybody turned into for the midnight, yeah, midnight uh, music and stuff. Yeah, it was good. So I hope that we can do this again. Yeah, yeah, no problem. When they painted over the signs in different places in Kimonic that once said colored, you could still see the words. It was just whitewashed. The sentiment is still there. But we can hope it can be completely erased. Years have a way of either erasing or changing the impact of what it means to be denied basic human dignity and decency.
But history is not to be whitewashed. You have to acknowledge the real history of those who suffered in order for real healing to take place. From the Northernick of VA to Johannesburg, SA, the same is true. Courage, strength, knowledge, and love are the constant companions of the children of the first ones. Because of that, we survive and we conquer. My second book is called Social Justice at Apartheid's Dawn, African Women Intellectuals in the Quest to Save the Nation. This is dealing with a time period in South African history from 1910 to 1948 that is known as the segregation era. It's before the era of apartheid, which was a more brutal form of oppression that lasted in the country for 46 years until 1994. Join me for part two of my interview with Dr. Don Y. Curry on A Pixie from Kilmarnock. The music by Robert A. Hall. This is dedicated to the first ones and the strength they left behind. Thank you for listening.